Hi, Dreamers. This is Nick. And this is Andy. And we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to California Dreaming, true crime tales from the Golden State on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe site, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head on over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, onto the show. Warning. This episode contains graphic details involving sexual assault and violence against women that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Also, today's episode is the second part of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to pause here and listen to episode 28 first. With one of our most mysterious missing child cases. It started at this Cleveland middle school one year ago today. 14-year-old Gina DeJesus left school and started walking down this busy Cleveland street. She never made it home. Gina vanished in broad daylight. When I came home and I got on the phone, and from 4 o'clock I started calling friends after friends, they said they did not see her. I talked to the last person who did see Gina that day, her best friend and classmate, Arlene Castro. The two girls were walking home together, hoping to spend the rest of the afternoon at Gina's house. I decided to call my mom to ask her, and so she gave me 50 cents to call my mom, and so my mom said no, that I can't go over her house. And so I told her I couldn't, and she said, well, okay, I'll talk to you later, and she swapped. Normally, Gina would have taken the bus. But after she gave Arlene 50 cents for the payphone, she didn't have enough money left for bus fare. So she headed home on foot. Police canines tracked Gina's scent from the payphone at the corner, right down the street, halfway up the block, to this snow street sign right here. And this is where the trail went cold. The disappearance of Gina DeJesus on busy Lorraine Avenue has sent a familiar chill through this Cleveland community. The cops working to bring her home are the same cops trying to solve the disappearance of another teenage girl, almost exactly a year earlier and just a few blocks away. Amanda Berry vanished on April 21st, 2003, as she walked home from her job at this fast food restaurant. And when she disappeared, which direction was she walking? She was last observed to be walking northbound on West 110th, which is a street right here. Two attractive teenage girls. They disappear in similar circumstances along the same busy avenue. What does it mean? A lot of the local people around here, you know, are talking about it as well and how they're getting a little bit scared for their, their, their children as well. Whether or not these cases are connected, police and the families of these two girls need your help. Gina DeJesus was last seen wearing a tan shirt with a lightning tattoo. Last week, 
we talked about the disappearances of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Georgina de Jesus in the city of Cleveland, Ohio. We discussed the circumstances leading up to each of them having gone missing. We talked about what was going on in the lives of each of the girls at the time they vanished and how they had been taken as they were walking down the street by the same man, Ariel Castro. How he targeted each of them and how he was able to lure them into his vehicle and eventually into his home where he held them captive for years and years. We talked about the investigation into each of their cases and how Michelle's disappearance was never really linked to Amanda's and Gina's, but Amanda's and Gina's were linked almost immediately because of the way they both disappeared and how close the proximity the location of their disappearances were to one another, as well as how Michelle's disappearance was handled differently, not only by investigators because she was an adult, but also by her family, whose search for her, sadly, did not appear to be as rigorous as it was for the families of Amanda and Gina, who were both minors at the time they vanished. Their cases garnered much more media attention, including a segment on America's Most Wanted, which you heard at the beginning of this episode, as well as the involvement of the FBI in the effort to search for them. In last week, we wrapped it up by talking about the devastatingly heartbreaking moment when self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown told Amanda's mom, Luana, on national television that her daughter was dead, something that her mom never really was able to recover from. She passed away a little more than a year later, never having found the answers as to what had happened to her missing child. Today, I want to take you back to the day when this nightmare came to an end, finally. A nightmare that lasted for 10 years, 8 months, and 14 days for Michelle, 10 years, and 14 days for Amanda, and 9 years, 1 month, and 5 days for Gina. And how it would be one single Christmas Day blessing that would eventually lead to Castro's world to come crashing down around him. In the conclusion of this two-part episode of the second installment of California Dreaming's vacation series, The Tales of Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. We left off last week with the death of Amanda's mom, Luana, on March 2nd, 2006. I mentioned that Amanda watched her mom being told by supposed psychic Sylvia Brown on her little black and white TV that Amanda was no longer alive and she watched her mom break down into tears on national television upon hearing that. Well, Amanda also learned, more than a thousand days into her captivity, that her mom had passed away. She had watched her mother's fight for her. She had seen her mom never give up looking for her. Thinking about this, if you're anything like me, it's causing tears to well up into your eyes. Can you even put yourself into that place? Being held captive, isolated from your friends and family and loved ones, chained up in repulsive conditions, beaten and assaulted on a regular basis, living in constant fear for your life. And then could you imagine 
In this time of mourning and sorrow, devastated by the loss of your mom, knowing now that you're never going to see her again, that you become so desperate for comfort that you would actually turn to your captor for it? Castro had come in to find Amanda, saddened over the loss of her mom. She talked to him about it, expressed her feelings and her grief, and he, in a sickening twist, offered her words of comfort, telling her that everything was going to be okay, that she was going to be okay. And with that, Amanda asked Castro for a hug. So desperate for something warm and something compassionate, she turned to him, this man, for thousands of days, who would otherwise lay his hands on her forcibly and violently, was the only comfort she had in mourning the loss of her mom. The thought of it is unbelievable. I started wondering about this phenomenon, feelings towards one's captor, also known as Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know if this is actually a thing for Michelle, Amanda, and Gina, but the fact that Amanda had reached out to this man for comfort and support, it kind of came to mind. As in several imprisonment and torture cases, the notion that the victims might have possibly suffered Stockholm Syndrome is often floated. It's difficult to imagine, but when I saw in an interview with Amanda that this exchange had actually happened between her and Castro, I couldn't imagine it being anything other than this. That psychological phenomenon where hostages develop more positive feelings towards their captors. They've been known to side with them once they've been released, although I don't think this was the case by any means for either Michelle, Amanda, or Gina. To me, this weird loyalty seems completely irrational, but I'm no psychologist, and I certainly have no experience to speak from. Considering the amounts of abuse a victim is subjected to, how is it these positive feelings arise? The thought is that the victim mistakenly takes a respite of the abuse as an act of kindness. This sort of trauma bonding manifests when a hostage appears to become emotionally attached to their captors, identifying with them, sympathizing with them even. Even in some interviews that I've watched with Amanda and Gina, they really didn't say all that much about the horrible person Castro was. Gina says that he has mental issues. Amanda too made some positive comments about him, which I will get into a little bit later. Michelle's situation with Castro differed from the other two because he seemed to be more violent and angry towards her than the others. As I said, I don't know for a fact if any of them had shown indications of Stockholm Syndrome, but to be honest, I don't know if that would be an accurate take on their experiences. I would be more likely to think that the girls behaved the way that they did out of fear and the instinct to survive. I don't think Amanda hugged Castro because she had positive feelings towards him. I think she hugged him because her human need for love and compassion needed to be filled. So back to this incredible story. About a month after Amanda's mom died, on her 20th birthday, April 22nd, 2006, something would happen that would change everything 
for everyone in that house. Amanda had come to suspect that she was pregnant. She wrote about it in a journal she kept while in captivity, writing that she thought that she might be pregnant and she felt like it was sent to her by her mom, someone to help her pull through this. She wrote, I think she is sending me a miracle. And a miracle indeed, as come that December 25th, Christmas Day, Amanda gave birth to a baby girl she named Jocelyn. Of course, Amanda had no prenatal care. She was never taken to the doctor. And when she went into labor in the early morning hours of that Christmas day, it would be Michelle who would serve as obstetrician, birthing coach, midwife, basically everything. She would be the one who helped Amanda bring baby Jocelyn into this world. Unfortunately, it was into Castro's world and Castro did not mince words. He told Michelle if the baby died, she would die. The girls brought in a small plastic wading pool in order to minimize the mess of the birth. They sat Amanda in there while Castro sat in a chair nearby reading a book about birthing children. When Jocelyn was born, it would also be Michelle who would clear her airways, and when it appeared that the baby wasn't breathing, Michelle breathed for her. It was then baby Jocelyn became Castro's fourth captive. Now Amanda, at the age of 20, has lost her mom and then became a mom all in the same year. On top of that, having to cope with the fact of who the father of the baby was, the man who was abusing and torturing her, Michelle and Gina, for years by now, and they weren't even halfway through their ordeal yet. Amanda would look at her new little baby girl and see Castro in her. Yet, somehow, someway, Amanda was able to push all of that aside as Jocelyn was hers and that was that. Amanda now had this little gift, this little bundle of joy to exist for, albeit under the most horrendous of circumstances. And none of this was going to be easy, as Castro was paranoid about raising questions and suspicions as to whose baby Jocelyn was. He wouldn't buy baby supplies, formula, diapers, clothes, and of course, no medical care was to be provided for the newborn. It was absolutely primitive, and not to mention cruel. In Jocelyn's first outfit, Castro's nasty socks. He took one sock and cut out two holes on each side for her legs and then took another sock and cut out two holes for her arms. But through it all, Amanda rose above the circumstances she was trapped in and did everything she could to make hers and Jocelyn's surroundings as normal as possible. She decorated the room and had toys and stuffed animals. Looking at pictures of it, it looks kind of like a ramshackle preschool. But knowing what Amanda was facing and what she had been enduring, it would have to be one of the most amazing things I've seen in everything that I've looked at related to this case. That little room Amanda created for her child. It's remarkable. Amanda wasn't the only one who would become pregnant as a result of Castro's repeated sexual assaults. 
Michelle had become pregnant several times as well. I'm not sure how many pregnancies there were in total. I don't even know if Michelle even really knows how many there were. But as you know how the story ends, only one child would emerge from that Cleveland home. Castro wasn't interested in having children with Michelle. According to the girls themselves, Amanda was a so-called favorite and Michelle was his punching bag. So what became of Michelle's pregnancies? Well, Castro himself ensured that none of those babies would be carried to full term. Whenever Michelle became pregnant, he would take it upon himself to cause Michelle to miscarry. And he would do so by beating her, kicking her, punching her in the abdomen, hitting her in the head with dumbbells, throwing her into walls and down the stairs, and starving her. I can't tell you how much hate is flowing through me right now as I'm thinking about the things this man did to these girls. Fortunately, and it's actually not often the word fortunately can be used in talking about what these girls endured, but it was fortunate that Gina was there to help nurse Michelle back from all of those injuries she suffered at the hands of Castro. Jocelyn's presence would eventually change the way things would be handled in the Castro House of Horrors. It sounds kind of cliche to call it that, but it's the most accurate thing I can think of. So I don't know what Castro thought when Jocelyn came along. He probably had this weird, twisted vision of a family that he now had. But according to Amanda, the baby loved him, and he loved the baby which I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, okay, I know the guy's a dad with four kids from a previous marriage, and maybe his feelings towards the baby can be construed as love. It's such a huge contradiction in my mind, and yet, what does Amanda mean by he loved the baby? That it wasn't beating and assaulting her, yet? I don't know if there were ever any suspicions that he had ever preyed on his own daughter's from what I could see, there was never anything like that going on in his background. And by the way, that is not by any means a redeeming quality. Just because Castro never touched his own children, nor did he ever kill anybody, doesn't earn him any brownie points, which he tries to gain for himself later on in the story. Anyway, as Jocelyn grew older, the truth was getting harder and harder to hide. Jocelyn could see that the girls were chained up. Castro told her that they were bracelets. So by the time she turned three, he decided to remove the chains from them. Because of Amanda's little Christmas miracle, the chains were finally off after six years in captivity. It was also around this time that Castro allowed Jocelyn to go outside for the first time. Can we stop? and let that sink in for a moment. Three years of never having left the confines of that house. Jocelyn had never seen a park or a playground or other children. And it was from that point on, from the very first time the sun shone down on Jocelyn, that she was going to beg and beg and beg her dad to keep taking her outside. And this was changing every dynamic in the world Castro had created for himself. 
It was no longer he and his three locked up captives. He was in this role of doting dad, whose little girl wanted to constantly go places. She wanted to go to the park. She wanted to go to Sunday school. She wanted to go get ice cream. And Castro was caving into all of beautiful little Jocelyn's requests. You know and I know that this could not, it would not be able to go on forever. And when it was time for this world of his to begin to crumble, it would be Jocelyn that would be Castro's undoing. But before that day would happen, Jocelyn would need to get ready to go to kindergarten. Don't get me wrong, you know and I know there is no way Castro is going to allow Jocelyn to begin attending public school. So Amanda was going to have to bring school to Jocelyn, the only way she could, pretend. She created an imaginary classroom inside the room Castro kept her imprisoned. She would pretend to leave the home with Jocelyn, pretend to cross the street until they got to school. Amanda would sit her down at a desk and tell her to have a good day at school. She had pictures on the walls, artwork, workbooks, coloring books. Amanda and Jocelyn repeated the same make-believe routine every single day of what would have been Jocelyn's kindergarten year. As it would turn out, Jocelyn would not see her first grade year in the pretend school her mom created for her. For Castro, his time was up. You can imagine that as the days, months, and years dragged on for Michelle, Amanda, and Gina, they tried to come up with a plan to escape, but they were held back by fear. Fear of Castro, fear of being caught, fear of being killed. Castro had spent all those years torturing the girls, beating them, attacking them, raping them, forcing them to live in deplorable conditions only allowing them to shower when he would allow it. Being made to use a bucket for a toilet, which was rarely emptied, depriving them of food, all the while being chained up, and of course, on top of all of this, psychologically torturing them, often pitting the girls against one another. The depths of this man's depravity runs much too deep for me to be able to even begin to describe what he put them through, so I'm not even gonna try. But I will say this, no matter how much Castro tried to break these girls, he never did. They never gave up hope. Their minds never stopped. They were always looking, watching, waiting, hoping for him to make one careless mistake. Remember, after Jocelyn turned three, Castro was no longer able to keep them chained up as he previously had. She was getting older, and she was asking questions. So without those chains, the only thing standing between Michelle, Amanda, Gina, and Jocelyn, and freedom, were some locked doors. On May 6, 2013, Jocelyn took notice that her dad's car was not in the driveway. She told her mom... Daddy's car is gone. This was Amanda's moment of truth. With her heart pounding, she tried the bedroom door. And for some reason, a stroke of luck, 
For the first time in 10 years, Castro slipped up. Carelessly, unknowingly, leaving Amanda's bedroom door open. She hesitated, wondering if she should attempt to make a run for it. Should she do it? What if he comes back? What if it's a trick? What if he's setting her up? What would he do if he caught her trying to get away? Amanda told herself, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do this now. She grabbed Jocelyn and ran down the stairs and threw open the front door, but behind that, there was another door, padlocked shut. She managed to shove her arm through a small opening and began desperately waving, pleading for someone to help her. Too frantic and too scared to go back and get Michelle and Gina. Meanwhile, upstairs, they've come to realize that Amanda was making a break for it, and the girls started talking about making a run for it too. Michelle was ready to do this. I'm sure with adrenaline starting to rush through her, she wanted to run. But Gina was hesitant. She too was afraid of being caught by Castro. A neighbor nearby spotted Amanda, but he was uncertain as to what was going on at Castro's home. Mind you, all of these people know Ariel Castro. They've socialized with him. They've known him as the bus driver. They've barbecued with the guy. When the first person Amanda saw walk away, unwilling to get involved, it was a terribly sinking feeling. The fear coursed through her that Castro was going to come home and her chance would be gone forever. I'm talking with Charles Ramsey. He's a neighbor. Uh, walk me through again what happened this afternoon. You, were, you, you heard screaming. I heard screaming. I meet my McDonald's. I uh, come outside. I see this girl going nuts trying to get out of her house. So I go on the porch. I go on the porch, and she says, help me get out. I've been, I'm, I've been in here a long time. So, you know, I figured it's a, a domestic violence dispute. So I open the door, and we can't get in that way because how the door is, it's so much that a body can't fit through, only your hand. So we kick the bottom, and she comes out with the little girl, and she says, call 911. My name was Amanda Berry. And did you know who that was when, you, when she said that? When she told me, it didn't register until I got the call in 911. And I'm like, I'm calling the 911 for Amanda Berry? I thought this girl was dead. You know what I mean? And, and she got on the phone, and she said, yes, this is me. And the detective... Uh... Charles Ramsey lived on the same street as Castro. He responded when he saw Amanda desperately trying to get out of that house. He went up onto the porch, and she asked him to help her get out, that she had been in there for a really long time. He tried to pull on the door, but he couldn't pull it open. So he began to kick the bottom panel of the door out for her, and he managed to get some of it kicked in. He told her to try and kick the rest of it out, so she did. She crawled out the bottom panel, reached in, pulled her daughter out, and they were free.
Police arriving at the home on Seymour Avenue stormed the house. They first saw Amanda outside holding Jocelyn. She waved her arm at them and the officers were like, is that her? The first officers looked at each other and in disbelief realized that it's her. This is her. They asked if there was anybody else inside the house and she confirmed that Gina De Jesus and Michelle Knight were inside as well. They began to make their way up the steps, describing the home as very quiet, very peaceful. They started to think that nobody was there, that they would just clear the floor and exit the home. But they suddenly heard a scuffling sound coming from one of the rooms. They see Michelle, who has emerged from the room. She paused, likely wondering if what she was seeing was really happening. After a moment, she charged towards Officer Anthony Espada and jumped into his arms. He held onto her tight. Fighting back tears, he described having Michelle in his arms when he sees Gina appearing around the corner. To him, it was like one bombshell after another. That's when he sent out the broadcast that they had found him. The girls who had been missing for so, so long. Officer Barbara Johnson described watching Michelle latch onto Officer Espada, and when he put her down, she rushed over to Officer Johnson and begged her to please not let her go. She assured her that she wouldn't. When Officer Espada saw Gina, he recognized her right away, despite the fact that she was thinner and pale and her hair was chopped off. He knew he was looking at Gina de Jesus missing for such a long time. But to confirm, he asked her her name, and she told him that her name was Georgina de Jesus. Officer Espada was barely able to hold it together. He glanced over at Officer Johnson and whispered, We found them. For her, the array of emotions was indescribable, as they were in complete disbelief in the moment. It was as if the weight of the world suddenly dissipated all at once. There was this overwhelming sense of relief, but that feeling is tempered by thoughts of what these girls had been through for the last 10 years. To her, you just can't think of it. Just push all of that aside and try to be as positive as possible for the girls, reminding them that they're safe now and everything was going to be okay. Now, it was time to find Castro. When Castro left that day, when Jocelyn noticed his car was gone, and he inexplicably left that bedroom door unlocked, he had actually gone to pick up his brother and to have dinner at their mom's house. When dinner was over, they were driving home, when Castro suddenly pulled over into a McDonald's parking lot. His brother asked him why they were going there. They had just eaten. Castro told him they were getting pulled over. His brother looked back and saw the flashing lights of the police vehicles. Officers approached the vehicle and asked them for their identifications. Castro's brother asked the officer what was going on, and the officer told him, All I can say is you're looking at some serious allegations. Around the same time, Castro's other brother was arrested in his home. They were all being held. Castro's two brothers having no idea what they were being held for. 
it was an early thought that the three of them were in on the kidnappings together. They were eventually told that they were being held on charges of kidnapping. They were interrogated. They were told that Michelle, Amanda, and Gina had been held captive in their brother's home. Of course, it would eventually be determined that Castro was the only one responsible for all of this, and his brothers were soon released. The news quickly spread throughout the Cleveland area, not to mention the rest of the country and the world, that not only had two missing girls been recovered in a home in a modest Cleveland neighborhood, there was a third victim whose disappearance had not been linked to the other two, nor did her story garner as much media attention. On May 8, 2013, two days after Amanda made that harrowing escape and frantic 911 call, she and Gina were finally returned home to their families. Amanda was brought under police protection to her sister's home in Cleveland. She was welcomed with thunderous cheers from hundreds of neighbors. The home was decorated with balloons and signs saying things such as, We never lost hope and we missed you very much. And the scene at Gina's house was very much the same. However, Michelle on that day remained quiet. And she decided to stay out of the spotlight. And from what I came to understand, her family had arrived at the hospital, but at the request of Michelle, they were turned away. On May 9th, Castro appeared in court for a bail hearing following appearances by his two brothers who were arrested along with him. They were officially cleared of any involvement in the kidnappings of Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. As it was found, there was no indication they had any knowledge of the women's captivity. Castro himself had also indicated that it was he, and he alone, that was responsible for this. Not that his word meant anything, but he wasn't attempting to implicate anyone else for any of this. Castro was being charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. His bail was set at $8 million. On May 10th, the county prosecutor stated that he was considering charging Castro with aggravated murder in relation to Michelle's pregnancies he terminated by force and hinted that this charge would enable him to seek the death penalty. On July 12th, Castro was indicted on 977 charges, including aggravated murder, kidnapping, and rape. On July 26th, he accepted a plea deal that spared him the death penalty. He pleaded guilty to an amended indictment that included 937 charges. August 1, 2013 was the day Castro was formally sentenced, and it was a long process. I watched it in its entirety, twice, and it was at least five hours long. Castro's attorney had objected to the hearing as the state of Ohio wanted to present their witnesses and evidence to make sure everything he did would be on record, since there wasn't going to be a trial. Castro's attorneys, however, wanted this to be over and done with as quickly as possible, but the judge overruled their objections and allowed for the state to present its witnesses in their case against Castro. And I wanted to share with you some of the most powerful aspects of the sentencing hearing, I want to share with you the experiences of some of the first people who encountered the girls as soon as they emerged from that home. The doctors, the investigators, the psychiatrists, the judge, and Castro himself, and one of the victims. The one who came to be known as the forgotten victim. I want to share with you what she had to say 
when she had the chance to come face to face with Castro. The tables now turned as he was preparing to be imprisoned for life, chained, shackled, freedom that he forfeited. I already went over some of the details earlier regarding the first responders. They took the stand and stated for the record how they answered the call to the home on Seymour Avenue that day. After that, the attending emergency room doctor took the stand and testified about his encounter with the four victims as they were brought into the ER that day. He was asked what his assessments were of the patients. He stated that all three of the women were emotionally distraught, happy to be free, but emotionally distraught nonetheless, and still very, very fragile. All three related to the doctor that they had been sexually assaulted and that they had been held prisoner in the house for several years against their will. Michelle had related that she had been pregnant multiple times and was subjected to deprivation of food and physical assault in order to induce miscarriages. All three indicated that they had been physically assaulted over the period of time that they were in captivity. However, it was the doctor's observation that Michelle had several bruises on her body. All three of them were gaunt, emaciated in appearance, and suffered from malnutrition. The doctor testified that all three of the women were given sexual assault forensic examinations as they had related to him multiple instances of forcible rape under threat of physical harm. Called to the stand, an investigator assigned to the firearm section with the Cleveland Bureau of Criminal Investigation, also known as the BCI. Immediately as I was watching this hearing, I was curious as to what the firearms expert was doing on the stand, as I hadn't heard about any guns involved at this point in any of these crimes. And it would turn out to be quite interesting. He didn't just do ballistics testing. He also examined gun operability and tool mark comparisons. There was a gun recovered at Castro's home, and I came to understand that he used this gun to threaten the girls if they had tried to flee or attack him. He let it be known that he was armed. I hadn't become aware of this weapon until I watched the sentencing hearing. I mean, I understand this man kept the girls chained and locked in his home. I knew he physically abused them, but the fact that he had a gun made sense as to why they were so afraid to do anything if he wasn't looking or if he was sleeping. On the stand, the firearms expert identified a Ruger Service 6 revolver that was recovered from Castro's home. He had tested the gun and determined that it was indeed operable, even though it was old. Aside from the gun, he was given the job to examine the chains that were found in the home, the ones that were used to restrain the girls for all those years. He found that there were 99 feet of chains used on the girls, not including the smaller chains that were padlocked at different points on the lengths of the longest chain. And the total weight of all the chains and padlocks combined totaled a little more than 92 pounds or 42 kilograms. The firearms expert also indicated that it was not only firearms that was involved in the examination of evidence from Castro's home, that pretty much the entire lab took part including determining the paternity of Amanda's daughter, confirming that Castro was the father. The FBI agent who was in charge of the investigation took the stand next. He had been on the case from the time Amanda Berry went missing until they were all found. He got word that day that Amanda had been recovered at the home on Seymour Avenue. 
he arrived within 15 minutes, at which time he was advised that not only had Amanda been found, but Michelle and Gina and a six-year-old girl. As Cleveland police were securing the scene and filling him in on what had just gone down, he focused on the ambulance parked nearby. He had the chance to go over there, and he was able to peer inside, and he immediately recognized, after 10 years of looking for them, Amanda and Gina sitting there. He was not familiar with Michelle, and he also saw Amanda's daughter. He was asked if that moment stood out to him as an investigator. He said that he would never forget it. It wasn't long after he was able to finally lay his eyes on the girls that he refocused on the investigation. Getting the FBI evidence response teams, as well as securing warrants for the home, vehicles, telephones, and DNA, so those could be executed as soon as possible. He also wanted to secure any witnesses quickly. He wanted to bring the suspect into custody, and his whereabouts at this point were still unknown. He also coordinated getting the families of the girls to the hospital as well, along with arranging for all of the things that needed to be done to make sure the girls were going to be returned in a safe manner. They needed to be provided with a safe place to stay. They needed to be provided with food, clothing, shoes. The FBI were going to be the ones to see to it that the girls finally had the things that they needed in their first couple of days of freedom. The FBI arranged for hotel rooms for the girls, along with 24-hour security. They arranged for transportation so the girls could go shopping for food and clothing. And eventually, in concert with the Cleveland Police Department, the FBI arranged for their return to their homes and their loved ones. He was asked if the victims would be in need of ongoing medical care as a result of their captivity, abuse, and victimization by Ariel Castro. He stated that all of the victims' needs are ongoing and that no one could really expect any different. He indicated that the girls had made dramatic improvements in the time that he had spent with them, that they were with people that loved them, that they are getting world-class medical and psychological care, but also that they cannot possibly turn off 10 years of systematic, sustained, psychological, sexual, and physical abuse like a light switch, and that goes without saying. A forensic psychiatrist who investigated Castro on behalf of the state was called to the stand to testify as to his findings, along with the report he had submitted at the conclusion of his investigation. It was his opinion that the scope and magnitude of Castro's crimes were unprecedented when it came to the number of unrelated victims, meaning the three girls abducted separately, the duration they were held in captivity, along with the location of the home where they were being held captive, having been so close to where they all had gone missing from. He stated that most abductions only last maybe a few minutes or hours, but the fact that these crimes had been so strategically carried out over a period of so many years, it was highly unusual. He added that there were certainly cases where there have been more longer-term abductions, but Castro with his numbers of victims for that many years, in a neighborhood setting places him in a class of his own. In the manner in which he kept the girls over the years, he exposed them to a life of complete degradation and violence, along with control over the most intimate functions of their lives, including when they could eat, 
when they could bathe, and when they could use the restroom. A complete and comprehensive captivity. The psychiatrist also stated that the most significant findings of his investigation was how, through the years, that Castro was completely duplicitous with family, neighbors, friends, and co-workers in order to keep his secrets hidden and under control. It was astounding how Castro was able to conceal what he was doing from everyone in his life, even for a period of time having a girlfriend who knew nothing about what was going on inside his home. He went to great lengths to conceal what he was hiding. Doing such things as using wigs to disguise anyone who he was going to allow to go outside. He constantly played loud music throughout the house in order to mask any screams that might have come from the girls. And when Amanda's daughter was born, Castro gave the women aliases and taught her those names. Castro had no history of mental health issues. He had never been diagnosed with any. And when he was examined by the court psychologist, he was deemed competent with no mental health issues at all. Long story short, Castro knew what he was doing, and he knew it was wrong. Next, the state called to the stand the psychiatrist who reviewed the documents and information regarding the victims, or survivors as it would be, Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. In his findings, he first outlined the significant ways the girls were hurt. Firstly, they were exposed to countless and repeated episodes that were terrifying and the kinds of trauma that leads to post-traumatic stress disorder by definition. And it's the kind of thing that stays with the person for years, sometimes for the rest of their lives. It's the abnormal memories that rewire the circuitry of the brain caused by the kind of degradation, defilement, and dehumanization that brings the kind of trauma to which they were subjected to to a whole other level. They were systematically and relentlessly deprived of their sense of self, their sense of dignity, their connection to others, not having access to sanitary facilities, not to mention the way that they were fed and the way that they were chained for a very long time. And these young girls were deprived of their parents, their families, their friends, home, school, and of those 10 years where they were transitioning from being an adolescent to a young woman into a woman. He illustrated that this type of degradation isn't going to bring about the same kinds of PTSD as some other kinds of trauma because it inhibits your ability to know how to trust. These were the stages of the girls' lives that they were developing the capacity for real intimacy. And instead, they were exposed to Castro and his perversion of intimacy. The psychiatrist also went into the ways of coping. How did the girls cope with all the things that had been going on all those years in captivity? In his words, he described them as compelling and marvelous examples of resilience, of imagination, and of humanity. He was particularly struck with Michelle and what an extraordinary woman she is. She was doctor, nurse, pediatrician, midwife, having been the one who delivered Amanda's baby, and doing this under the most primitive of circumstances. And when baby Jocelyn came into this world and wasn't breathing, it was Michelle who breathed life into her. He also discussed how Michelle often put herself between Gina and Castro, so Gina would not have to bear the brunt of his violence and assaults on them. And as for Amanda, 
Her ability to raise her child in these circumstances, all the while teaching her values, faith, not to mention the school she created for her. As for the girls coping, they had each other, and those interactions were the very real human interactions that kept them going. They shared love, faith, optimism. It was their character, their personalities, their strengths that saw them through. Then it came time for the victim impact statements. Gina's cousin read a statement on behalf of her family, and it read in part, Today is the last day we want to think or talk about this. These events will not own a place in our thoughts or in our hearts. We will continue to live and love. We will stand before you and promise you that our beloved family member thrives. She laughs, she swims, dances, and more importantly, she loves and is loved. We are comforted in knowing that she will continue to flourish. She will finish school, go to college, fall in love, and if she chooses, will get married and have children. She is where we will continue to put all of our energy. She lives not as a victim, but as a survivor. Her insurmountable will to prevail is the only story worth discussing. We ask that you continue to give her and our family privacy as we continue this journey back into society. And with that, she turned and faced Castro, called him out by name, and said in Spanish, May God take pity on your soul. Amanda's sister read a statement on behalf of her and her family. It read in part, the impact of these crimes on our family is something that we do not want to discuss with people we don't know. Even if I wanted to talk about it, it is simply impossible to put into words. For me, I lost my sister for all of those years and thought it was forever. We lost my mother forever, and she died not knowing. My mother and my sister, the two most loving people in the world, it is almost impossible to put into words how much it hurts. Amanda is not here today. She is strong, beautiful, inside and out, and is doing better every day. She's not just my only sister, but the best friend I have and the best person I know. She does not want to talk about these things. She has not talked about these things even with me. She does not want other people to talk about these things. The main reason she does not want to talk to anyone about these things or be forced to talk about it is because she has a daughter. She would like to be the person who decides what to tell her daughter, when to tell her daughter, and how to tell her daughter certain things. When people say things and file things in court, it's public. It gets written about and talked about by people we don't know. Amanda's concern is that her daughter will hear things or read things said by the wrong people, the wrong way, the wrong time, before Amanda thinks the time is right to tell her daughter. My sister has asked me to say the same thing she has been saying since this case started. Please respect her privacy. She does not want other people talking or writing about what happened. Now that there will be no trial, there doesn't really seem to be any reason at all why people cannot do what she asks. Amanda did not control anything for a long time. Please 
let her have control over this so she can protect her daughter. In an extraordinary show of courage, Michelle read her statement to the court herself. I want to play the audio of it for you, and I will at the conclusion of this episode. But the audio, because it was read in open court, is not always that clear. And I really want to read it to you, but I will play it at the end because her voice deserves to be heard. Her statement read as follows. To Judge Russo, I would like to tell you what 11 years of my life was like. I missed my son every day. I wondered if I was ever going to see my son again. He was only two and a half when I was taken. I would look inside my heart and see my son. I cried every night. I felt so alone. I worried about what might happen to the other girls and me every day. The days never got shorter. The nights turned into days. The days turned into years. The years turned into an eternity. I knew nobody cared about me. He told me that my family didn't care about me. He tormented me constantly, especially on holidays. Christmas was the most traumatic day because I didn't get to spend it with my son. No one should ever have to experience what we went through, not even an enemy. Gina and I were a team. I never let her fall and she never let me fall. She nursed me back to health when I was dying from his abuse. My friendship with Gina is the only good thing to come from this situation. We said we'll all get out alive someday, and we did. To Ariel Castro, I remember all of the times you came home talking about everyone else that did someone wrong. You acted like you weren't doing anything wrong. You said, at least I didn't kill you. You took 11 years of my life, but I've got my life back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that happened, but you are going to face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I am not going to let you define me or affect who I am. I will live on, but you will die a little more inside each day as you think of those 11 years and the atrocities you inflicted on us. What does God think of you hypocritically going to church each Sunday, then coming home to torture us? The death penalty would have been an easy way out. You don't deserve that. We want you to spend the rest of your life in prison. I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. With God's guidance, I'll prevail and help other victims who may have suffered at the hands of another. Writing this statement gives me the strength to be a stronger woman and know that there are more good people than evil. I know there's a lot of people going through hard times, but they need someone to reach out a hand for them and hold and let them know they are being heard. After a long 11 years, I am being heard and it feels liberating. The county's assistant prosecutor hammered it home just to make sure it was clear that Castro needed to pay dearly for his crimes. She stated that the purposes of sentencing is to punish the offender and to protect the public. This case speaks volumes with regards to the defendant's actions if you look at the harm that has been caused to these victims. His actions of luring these victims, vulnerable victims, 
a victim that wanted to see her son, luring her with puppies, then holding her captive for almost the next 11 years, then luring the other two young girls, ages 16 and 14, under the guise of coming to see his own daughters, and then holding them in captivity for the next 10 years for Amanda and nine years for Gina. He locked the doors. He kept them chained. He used dirty socks when they screamed, along with duct tape and motorcycle helmets. A repeated pattern of sexual and physical abuse. Laying a hand on a woman, on anybody, is a crime in this country, and he repeatedly did it for his own benefit. Slapping them, punching them, stomping on their stomachs. He dictated. He dictated when they ate, when they slept, when they could talk, when they could interact. He dictated when they could go to the bathroom, and if that commode would be emptied was based on how defiant their behavior was. He tormented them by allowing them to watch their own vigils and members of the community circling around their families looking for them on the anniversary dates of their disappearances. He even had the audacity to attend them and talk to the family members, knowing full well that these women were in his captivity right under his roof. He would go to church on Sundays and come home and torment them. He told them that they had to respect their elders, that he was their elder, and they had to do exactly what he wanted, when he wanted, whenever he wanted. He bartered with food. He gave them money and then take it away. He made them do chores to earn their keep. He provided no medical attention, from the oldest to the youngest. That child born in a swimming pool, and that child was not breathing when she was born, but for that young woman, Michelle, who had the courage to breathe life into her. She may not even be alive today if it wasn't for her. And to exacerbate that, he even kept the placenta in the refrigerator as a memento for a period of time. And in order to make it appear that he was a good member of the community, he would take out Amanda's baby and represent her as the daughter of his girlfriend. This brazen behavior of a cold, calculating, self-absorbed human being that does not need to see the light of day ever again. His actions have spoken so loud in this community, and by this plea, we hope that anybody else who challenges the law, that this will prevent any kind of behavior like this from ever happening again. Michelle said it best, it was an eternity, and that's what he deserves. And as for Castro's statement to the court, it's exactly what you would expect from a narcissistic, sadistic, sexual predator like him. He had the nerve to stand before the court and insist he was not a violent predator. He blamed the kidnappings on a sex addiction and compared it to alcoholism. He said he had no control over his addiction and that he was not a monster. He called himself a musician that he was a happy person inside. He drove a school bus for 21 years and that he did a good job. I already talked about what a good job he wasn't doing. He claimed he was trying to get fired, that it was too stressful coming home to this situation. Yeah, he called that his situation. He said he couldn't juggle it anymore. He mentioned all the allegations he had been abusive to his ex-wife Allegations which I did not even go over in this episode because I didn't even really feel like it was worth talking about. But he denied abusing her. 
He said he wasn't a wife beater. And he had the audacity to blame his wife, saying that she wouldn't quiet down, that she put her hands on him and he reacted. He reiterated that he wasn't violent, that he had a family, that he valued human life because every time he came home, he was glad for the situation. He said his daughter that he had with Amanda made his day, that she never saw any violence in that house, and that she'd probably say that her dad was the best dad in the world. He claimed that he was a normal person, that he's just sick with an addiction. He claimed that most of the sex that went on in the house, probably all of it, was consensual. Yeah, those were his words. That the allegations about being forceful on them were totally wrong. He even said that there were times that they would ask him for sex. He claimed that he did not prey on these women, that he just acted on his sexual instincts because of his addiction. He said, God is his witness, he never beat these women, that he never tortured them either. He claimed that they had a lot of harmony going on in that home. And as proof, stated if anyone had seen videos of Amanda on YouTube, that proves that that girl did not go through any torture. If that was true, do you think she would be out partying already and having fun? He stated all the victims were happy. And if all of this that I've told you hasn't already infuriated you, then this surely will. He addressed Michelle in court and said, since day one, no one missed her, that he never saw flyers about her. Finally, it was the judge's turn to speak. It's a very, very long statement given by the judge, so I'm going to cut to the chase. In response to Castro's claim that there was harmony in the house, the judge stated that he's pretty sure there's nobody else in America who would agree with him. He told Castro that he is a narcissist as he stood there before the court full of justifications for his actions the kidnappings, the rapes, the abuse, he did not once show an inkling of remorse, insisting that he's a good person and attempted to portray himself as a victim of addiction and childhood sexual abuse. The judge dismissed all of it, explaining to him that the sheer fact that he pled guilty to hundreds and hundreds of charges of violent crimes defines him as a violent person. And furthermore, the judge let him know that he sees absolutely no possibility for rehabilitation and that a person like him does not deserve to be out in the community, that there was no place in the world for this brand of criminal, and that he is simply too dangerous. And with that, the judge handed down a sentence of life without parole plus 1,000 years. However, in one final act of defiance, manipulation, and control, less than a month into his sentence, Castro hung himself with a bedsheet. I know that there are those who feel angered and disappointed that this man took the easy way out, that he is not going to suffer a miserable existence in prison, while there are others that say good riddance, the world is a better place without him in it. I don't like the idea of anyone taking their own lives, and when he was sentenced, I was relieved to see him locked up and the key thrown away. But I have to be completely honest, 
A part of me was kind of glad that he was gone when I heard that news. It's also worth mentioning, a week after the sentencing, the home where the girls were kept locked up for all those years was razed to the ground in an effort to keep it from becoming a morbid tourist spectacle. Today, the girls are continuing to rebuild their lives with their families and friends, and they are continuing to move forward with tremendous support from loved ones and the community. Michelle is now known as Lily Rose, a name she chose that reflects her two favorite flowers. She published a memoir and is releasing the second book on the fifth anniversary of their escape later this year entitled Life After Darkness, My Journey to Happiness. She has kept a relatively low profile, but there will be some details in the book about her new life. Amanda has put her energy into shining a light on missing people in the Northeast Ohio area, inspired by the time that she had spent in captivity watching news segments of people who were looking for her. She is now hosting a 30-second daily news segment on Cleveland's Fox 8, as it is now her personal mission to make sure missing people know that the public is still looking for them. She wants to get the faces and names of the missing people out there and to raise public awareness about every missing person. And as for Gina, after the memoir she penned with Amanda, she has also maintained a relatively low profile, enjoying life with her family in the suburbs of Cleveland. And this brings this two-part series of the tales of Michelle, now Lily Rose, Amanda and Gina to a close. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Karen B. once again for participating in my drawing for the vacation series. I had the pleasure of talking to Karen on the phone in between parts one and two, as these events took place virtually in her own backyard. I wanted to get an idea of what it was like for someone to have watched this happen in their hometown. From the time Amanda and Gina were kidnapped until the day they were found, the story haunted the entire community, and Karen would watch every year on the anniversaries and the birthdays of the girls, as the news would bring their stories back into the public. And the day that they were found, Karen, like the rest of Cleveland, felt a mixture of emotions, shock, disbelief, and elation. And the news, of course, trickled out of Ohio, across the country, and across the world. And we collectively cheered for these women. They became these symbols of hope, strength, perseverance, and courage for all of us. I hate what happened to them, but I love how this story ends. And I love that they did not fade into obscurity. It's difficult to think about the memories that they have to live with, but from what I can see, they aren't allowing that to define them. I love that they spoke to us through interviews and memoirs because they are truly, truly inspiring women. And again, thank you, Karen, so much for your help with this. And this is not the end of the vacation series just yet. I am going to touch on all the states that were part of the vote that I had last month, which were Michigan and Georgia. I have something planned for both of those states. However, I do have a little something extra special for the Georgia case. It was a submission from my friend Beth Michelle, who is not a podcast friend. She is a friend I met through a mixed breed pug page, as both she and I are proud pug mix owners. 
You all have probably seen pictures on social media of my puggy chihuahua, Fred. You know, the one with the big smile. Well, when I started California Dreaming, Beth took a chance on it, and she has been a tremendous supporter of the show ever since. There are so many others who have also supported, including Alicia, Mary Virginia, Stephanie L., Susan L., Annette, Jennifer B., Gwen R., Carol L., Jennifer N., Jan H., Leanna D., Stacy W., Sylvia S., Shondell Y., Catherine B., Kelly S., Carolyn M., Virginia C., Christine A., Nancy P., Timothy S., Randy, Michelle F., Karen M., Rebecca M., Heather B., Allison F., Jennifer M., Eileen W., Emma F., Tor H., and Jen L. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Join the California Dreaming Facebook group, like the page, and join the discussion. Share your thoughts about this story, or any of the stories you've listened to. I would love to hear your feedback and comments. You can also follow me on Twitter, at CaliforniaPod, and on Instagram, at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you would be so kind, if you enjoy the show, you can help give it more visibility by leaving a review on iTunes and on the Facebook page. Five stars would be much appreciated. And, as always, you can email me with the case suggestions or show sticker requests, questions, and comments. California Dreaming has proudly become a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network, home to an eclectic family of podcasts including The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, Busted Wide Open, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 4-1 Owned, and Film Roast. You can find all of us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and stream all of our shows and episodes in one place. Also, you will find links to our merchandise store at TeePublic. You can support your favorite podcaster and get a little something for yourself. A t-shirt, mug, hoodie, tote bag, all sorts of stuff. Click on the link to all the merchandise at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And before I sign out, I have a couple of promos to play for you. The first one really needs no introduction. It's The Cleaning of John Doe. And the second one I recently started listening to, Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Take a listen. The call had come in early that morning, and we found ourselves on the road again. The details weren't very clear. All we knew was that someone had shot someone with a gun. The man who met us out front of the poorly maintained apartment building was the manager. He wore the solemn look on his face like a mask. We followed him up the blood-stained stairs to the unit at the top. He unlocked the door and stepped aside. If walls could only talk, these would be screaming. The living room wall led immediately into the hallway and was heavily sprayed with blood. In the middle of it all was the only clean space, and it was a clear outline of a body. Crimson spatter and sickly pink brain matter covered the walls and ceiling. What happened? 
I didn't think a scene like this could get any worse. I learned I was wrong again. This is the cleaning of John Doe. What's up and welcome to the Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries promo. My name is Josh Cannon and I am here with my co-host Mike. Say hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. All right. Now that we got that hacky joke out of the way, did you know that we were the first fan podcast for the show Unsolved Mysteries? Uh, Josh, that's not entirely true. It's not? Well, uh, did, did you guys know we were the first Unsolved Mysteries podcast to get an official cease and desist letter from the executive producers from the show? That's definitely true. So yeah, if Robert Stack's voice gave you nightmares as a child, this podcast is for you. We release a new episode every Monday, and you can find us on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. So we hope you join us in uncovering some unexplained mysteries. Thank you, and don't forget to keep listening if you'd like to hear the impact statement read by Michelle Knight at the sentencing hearing. The audio isn't perfect, but we... Karen and I wanted to include it. And until next time, sweet dreams.
Now your hill is just beginning. I will overcome all this that happened, but you will face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I will not let you define me or affect who I am. You will, you will live, I will live on, you will die a little every day. As you think about the 11 years and atrocities you could inflicted on us. What does God think of you hypocritically going to church every Sunday? Coming home to torture us. The death penalty, penalty will be so much easier. You don't deserve that. You deserve to spend life in prison. I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. With the guidance of God, I will prevail and help others that suffered at the hands of others. <clears throat> Writing this statement gave, gave me the strength to be a stronger woman and know that there's good, there's more good than evil. I know that there's a lot of people going through hard times, but we need to reach out a hand and hold them and let them know that they're being hurt. After 11 years, I am finally being heard, and it's liberating. Thank you all. I love you. God bless you. Thank you.